Own Your Truth with life strategist Laura T. Real advice for regular people. Now, here's Laura. Hello, and welcome to Own Your Truth, where we're talking real advice for regular people. I'm Laura T. Thank you so much for listening. Each month, I have been lucky enough to be interviewing fabulous people living life their way. And this week is no exception. I am excited and really honored to be interviewing this fabulous woman tonight. Jessica Pels is the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan, the largest young woman's media brand in the world, where she oversees the content and editorial operations for the magazine, the web, video, and editorial innovation projects. Prior to her current role, Jessica served as the digital director of Cosmopolitan, where she led the site to its highest readership of all time. She also served as the digital director at Marie Claire. Before then, she worked in print as the features editor at Teen Vogue and held various editorial positions at Glamour. Jessica is a graduate of New York University, where she earned a BFA in film production from Tisch School of Arts. She hails from Atlanta and now lives in Manhattan. Jessica, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Hi, I'm so happy to talk to you. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. It's a strange time. How are you doing? I am wonderful. I hear you're in Atlanta. I I am from Atlanta, yes. Oh, okay. I still have my Atlanta phone number, which ah, throws a lot of people. But okay. I am here in Hell's Kitchen, um, alone in Manhattan. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I know, holding down the fort. Well, I'm sure given how you work, although you may be alone physically, you are definitely not alone um, in terms of contact. Oh, God, no. Yes. It's constant communication. Uh, the At the end of my workday every day, I feel like oh, I was interacting with more people than even I usually do. So, yes, it's, it's a lot of people and we're keeping an eye on each other. And, uh, you know, I think in this particular moment, having digital connectivity the way that we do is so critical. And it's been really inspiring to watch my staff of young women uh, check on each other and have Zoom cocktail hours and uh, make sure that everyone feels like they're still a part of a family. Well, I'm sure much of that is inspired by you and how you show up. I know you and um, I know your generosity and um, just kindness. So I'm sure so much of that connectivity is is inspired by you. Oh, that's sweet. (laughs) All right. So are you ready to dive in tonight? I am. Okay. So, you know, I'm absolutely fascinated by the work that you do. And so I have a few questions to start off the show about your work. But before we go there, I wanted to touch on your love of storytelling. It's something that I heard you talk a lot in other interviews, and it seemed like a common thread in your career. And, you know, in looking at your own life, it's such a great story. You have this fascinating background and amazing resume and this very cool job. If you could caption your personal story, what would it read? Ooh, uh, the ultimate challenge of um, (laughs) tightness for an editor. Um, Huh. You know, I think about a decade ago, I would have wanted the thrust of my personal story to be about... Um, command over my craft, uh, mastery of my craft. And then I think about five years ago, I would have wanted it to be about ingenuity, innovation, uh, being pioneering in this industry. And I think now, I guess what I'm saying is that it's evolved. Mm. Now I think 
I want my story to be just as much about heart, um, about passion for the work and the people who make it, but also this may sound cheesy, but a focus on, on love and on enriching the lives of my loved ones. Um, and I guess on, on leading as much with my heart as my head. Wow. That's beautiful. Can, can you explain sort of the evolution what's caused it to come about? Uh, I think I have always been a very driven person ever since I was a child. My parents tell me that I used to walk around and I was very busy, even as a toddler, too busy for them to hug me because I had things to do. (laughs) Um, And so I think I've always been focused on achievement. Um, And I'm lucky enough in my career to have gotten to a place where I have achieved a lot. I'm I'm certainly not done, but I've, I've achieved enough that I feel like I can stand on this, you know, mountaintop and, and look at what my life is and, and where I think it could grow still. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, beautiful, beautiful. Um, so when you look back um, and, you know, even looking back at this evolution you just described, uh, what do you want your story to say about you ultimately? Oh, that uh, that's such a lovely profound question um that i cared Mm. that i showed fully up at every opportunity i am someone who when i believe in something i give it my absolute all i give it 110 percent and um i think when things work uh it's because of that it's because i i really fully show up and um I think that's what I would like my story to say. Oh, and I'm sure it will. Again, just knowing you the little bit that I do. Um, so, <laughs> so let's talk Cosmopolitan. Keeping yeah. in the theme of storytelling, uh, Cosmopolitan has so many storytelling platforms. There's print, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. I mean, I, that's just a couple of them. As editor-in-chief, what is one piece of advice you would give someone managing their message across multiple platforms? You know, I think any business and really all businesses are managing their brand across multiple platforms at this point. Um, And they should be. And I think the trick is focusing on content and on voice that are endemic to each space. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a thought provoking essay about workflow might do well for your LinkedIn followers, but would bomb for your Instagram audience. Right, and I think you have to you have to really think about each platform as entirely separate audiences looking for entirely separate things, and your challenge is to make sure that everything you you message out across those various platforms is still authentic to you, either as a brand or as a person or a creator. Do you find that it's easy to lose that across um, platforms that that sense of you? I think um, I have seen brands try too hard to, um, you know, when they're adapting TikTok to Mm -hmm. be really weird. And um, the the, the youngs call it try hard when a brand uh, sort of abandons its core DNA in an effort to win over a new audience. Um, I have seen it happen. I think for me, what it really comes back to is voice, is Mm -hmm. authenticity of voice. So the presentation of Cosmo may be and is vastly different across Twitter or um, or TikTok, but we're using the same voice. We may be using slightly, you know, leveraging slightly different 
sides of our vocabulary, depending on the platform. But mm-hmm. if the voice, if the spirit of the thing is consistent, I think that's when it really works. Awesome. Great, great advice. So uh, looking at Cosmopolitan, I heard you say once you described it as being vintage cool, which I thought was <laughs> totally awesome. What does it take to keep a magazine vintage cool and relevant for today's readers? Again, looking at all of the platforms that you cover. Right. It's a tricky balance. Um, The first issue of Cosmo, as we know it today, was published in 1965. Um, And obviously a lot has changed since then, which um, in the case of women's empowerment, you know, Cosmo played a large part in that, which is very cool. Um, But there are things that haven't changed. And for Cosmo in particular, the plucky confidence, the shameless ownership of what you want, um, a sassy sense of humor. Those things were there then and are central to us now. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad to be at the helm of a brand with this at the core of its DNA because that whole spirit, that whole joie de vivre is more timely and relevant to young women today than ever before. Mm. So I, my job, I think, is really to focus on celebrating the parts of our DNA that were relevant then and are relevant now, while at the same time, it's sort of a, it can be a, a dangerous game, but you have to be brave about breaking what doesn't work anymore um, and being bold about moving forward. Wow. Wow. Great advice. Given the extent of your experiences, I was really curious about the lessons that you've learned along the way. So the first question I have is about priorities. I mean, you've got so much to juggle just at work, never mind all the things that you juggle at home. How do you set your priorities? Uh, you know, this is a constant struggle. <laughs> and I think it will be. Um, but Good, you're human. It's developed? nice to know you're human. Yes. <laughs> very, very human. Um, I think one of the skills I've developed later in my career um, as my jobs have expanded is just to a constant reassessment of priority on practically like a a minute to minute basis. Um, What I thought was the most important thing this morning might be 12 degrees less important by the afternoon when something else comes up. And I think um, that, I think that requires more emotional nimbleness than we necessarily acknowledge as a culture, Mm -hmm. the ability to sort of attach yourself to something and drive at it and then be able to put it on the back burner and reattach yourself to something else immediately. Um, And especially recently I've, I've um, as a, as a human, I have, you know, put more focus on building walls around the time in which I, I want to choose not to work and Mm. to focus on, you know, nourishing my brain or my body, Um, self-care, building routines around things that I find um, recharge me. Um, So that's sort of how I balance it professionally and personally. So can you share one one simple tip you have about sort of setting up that walls? I know with the number of people that I coach, both men and women, that that setting up the, the wall where it's your time. Can you share one tip you use to set that time for yourself? Yeah, I think I think it's sort of timely thing. Actually, this has really popped up in the in the time of Corona mm. is um you know, I have a staff of mostly young women. Um, we're all in our 20s and early 30s, basically. And uh, I realized early on in this this self-isolation, social distancing time that it's very easy for people without children to 
look up from the laptop at 10 p.m. and realize that they haven't moved or, you know, felt a distinctive difference between the working day and the not working day. So uh, my my leadership team and I established um, a new rule for our team. We're calling them Slack and email hours Um, for us. We're saying that they're from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. And basically, that's a, a structure for the entire team that we, when we communicate about work, it's during those times. We can draft things, schedule things uh, if we're working after hours, but that ideally we're kind of limiting our, our, our work discussion to those hours so that we feel, all of us collectively, a distinctive, okay, now we're moving into after hours where we can focus on, on ourselves. And especially now with the need to focus on mental health and right. on distancing yourself from the constant news cycle, um, that's been really helpful. I I really feel very accountable to my team at all times. I feel in some ways like I work for them. And if they're asking me questions at night, I will answer them at night. And so this has sort of been a collective, like, <laughs> we're all going to do this together. And I am notoriously bad about um, sending after hours ideas and questions as things come up. So I, we're all doing it together. And, and that's been really, really helpful. What a great message to start from the top and, and share with your team members. That's outstanding. Thank so, you. So in a lot of the interviews that I'd heard you do with other people, you talked about your struggle with perfectionism. How has, and, and again, this is something I talk with a lot of people about, how has being a perfection, perfectionist served you? Because I, I know for a long period of time, it really does serve people. And then I would ask after, you know, how has it challenged you? Ooh. Um, so uh, being a perfectionist has made me attentive to detail in a way that I think is critical in my line of work in particular. Um, and in this day and age when we're, you know, we're, we're sprinting across a million projects and platforms at once, it's helpful to be able to get the details right and move fast at the same time. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's been, it's, it's been really useful in that way. Um, it's been a challenge in that I, I'm still working on this very much, too. Um, it's been a challenge uh, figuring out when to let go, what's worth holding back to perfect, and what's better to release as soon as possible. I think those of us who work on the Internet and and in you know social media and in video have to learn that lesson um, in, in a bit more of a, a rolling, you just have to keep moving kind mm-hmm. of way. Um and so that, you know, constantly assessing ROI and uh, what's worth finessing and, and what it won't really make a difference if I spend an extra hour uh, doing X, Y, or Z. Um, and then, of course, you know, <laughs> not being too hard on myself is a <laughs> perpetual challenge. Of bear- I'm, I'm my own worst critic by far, and uh, that springs from the perfectionism. And um, I was talking to a friend of mine who, I'm a Virgo, He's a Leo. And uh, we were talking about the fact that for Leos, the, the ultimate uh, is compliments about being awesome. And for Virgos, I realized that for Virgos, the ultimate compliment is having done something perfectly, having done something awesomely. And so I sort of live my life by this metric of have I performed to the ultimate perfection Um which, of course, no one can. And to be honest, no one should. Mm. Um, and so the more I'm able to shake myself free of that, the better better off I am. 
And so, of course, I have to ask, how do you even <laughs> define perfect? Because this is, again, when I talk to people about this, how do you define perfect for you? Oh, uh, right. Well, <laughs> it seems to be perpetually out of reach, which I suppose is the point and the problem, right? It, um, you know, if, if I have done something, then it, it can't be perfect because perfect is, is the unachievable. Um, mm-hmm. Which, wow, what a thick cycle of self-torture that is. <laughs> Admittance is the first step to recovery. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's it's so true. And, and and until you have that definition, at least even for that moment, that project, I think you're right. It is hard to find that that satisfaction with a job well done. Hmm. Right. And I suppose I also associate satisfaction with a job well done with resting on one's laurels, which I've always thought was dangerous. And mm-hmm. um, as soon as you get complacent, uh, the work suffers and. So my my perpetual need to push forward, I think that's it's all wrapped up in the same somewhat scary bundle. Well, it is working for you, I have to say. Now, it, I, <laughs> I don't you. know that it's healthy, but it is definitely working for you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so the. the Another question that I had is um, you had talked about in other interviews floating in on borrowed confidence and having that feeling of imposter syndrome, at least at the start of your career. What do you think it takes to make that switch from borrowed confidence to truly feeling confident in what you're doing? I think I think it's about building up things that work. So I think every success, every project that goes well, every risk that pays off, I sort of visualize it like those are little cards that you put in your confidence pile. Mm -hmm. And so your confidence pile over time gets bigger and bigger. There will, and and I really think should always also be cards in your humility pile. Um, (laughs) I think the two have to exist in a certain kind of balance. Um, But that once the confidence cards outnumber the humility cards, you start to feel like it's not it's not borrowed it's earned um and and i think that really fuels future confidence too i know i can do this scary thing i've never done before because i did that other scary thing i've never done before and that worked so um i think the the real benefit too is that that's what allows you to take real risks and and to feel like you have um safe harbor for the ones that don't work out. Mm -hmm. Um, I think anyone who's not trying things that don't work um, is resting on laurels and isn't, you know, pushing for growth. And um, I think part of it in in a corporate system like mine is that, you know, having more cards in the confidence pile means uh, I have a lot of support from my uh, superiors who um, have celebrated wins with us and trust me that if something doesn't work, I um, will evolve and adapt. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So um, does that relate back to the quote that I've heard you say, if you aren't in over your head, how do you know how tall you are? I love that quote. Uh, yes, love, I do too. And I, I don't do. know if you came up with I'm like, that's a brilliant quote. And oh, so, God, no. I, I wish. <laughs> I think it's T.S. Eliot. Oh, that's right. I think you should mention that. It's a brilliant quote. <laughs> <laughs> and I attribute it to you. So look at that. <laughs> Wow. No, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> is that is that idea that 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 part of it is pushing yourself, not not um, sort of resting on your laurels? Um, 
does that incorporate at all with that quote? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. And I, I think it's associated, too, with the fact that I do really have to feel like I've given something my all. Um, I kind of, I, there's this piece of me that believes that, like, 10% of any project, any work initiative, any personal anything, um, 10% of, of the, the things that work out is due to the fact that I just pushed my heart into it and just really believed and got everyone else excited. Um, and I, I personally don't think I can do that unless I have thrown everything in. Um, and I'm the kind of person who, when I take a ballet class or a tennis lesson, if I'm not like drenched in sweat and so sore that I can barely walk, I feel like I didn't, I didn't give it enough, but that I also didn't get enough out of it. So, um, I really do, uh, like to give everything my all. And, and that's sort of what that quote says to me. It, it also speaks to a lack of, uh, fear, mm. a, a lack of fear that holds you back. At least I think there's a certain, um, cautiousness that we all have to have an awareness of what the risks are and what we stand to lose if things don't work out. Um, I'm constantly running analyses on, on what that landscape looks like, but being smart about, okay, I can, you know, I can withstand that loss. And so I will take this risk. And um, fearlessness, I think, is so important in this day and age. And, and especially when you work for the audience I work for, which is young women who right. are themselves very fearless and have incredibly high expectations of, um, of leaders, of, you know, political leaders, of business leaders, of um, influencers. They, they just have immense expectation as they should. And so um, I rambled. And uh, No, not I at all. Your question. No, I, I mean, as I'm listening to you, I'm really, I, I'm just absorbed in your answer and, and thinking like, you're just such a great role model. You know, I have a 16-year-old daughter oh. and um, just what you stand for and how you think about things, um, just really a great mo- role model for young women, which makes you obviously the perfect, in the perfect role um, that you're in right now. And so with that, we'll take um, our next break, which, as our regular listeners know, it's time for the Own Your Truth Musical Artist of the Week. This week, I'm thrilled to feature once again Lee Silvestri. My regular listeners know Lee. He's one of my favorite local musicians. Not only is he super talented, he's an outstanding person, and I'm honored to call him a friend. Last week, he released his new song, Crescent Moon. It's a story we can all relate to about love found and lost. Take a listen. Lee Silvestri, Crescent Moon. Our very first dance was a delicate one. Words were our foils and we chased the sun. Lofty ideas, yeah, unloaded guns And hardly a hint of the heat yet to come Oh, for a time there was peace in the valley Love in the wood and fire in the sky Sleep had no value, love kept no tally What should have been framework was riddled with lies Oh 
happened so soon The waxing and waning of my crescent moon Oh, it's midnight at noon For spiders and camels, my heart and my room Tight grip on the wheel, it was our navigator Best of the plan was trying hard to be whole. King bitter the wind, yeah, hungry the gators. Got tossed on the waves and started to roll. When love ran aground and my strength had left me. My turn to feign love I barely could stand When you needed patience When you needed kindness When it was too tall in order For a shriveling man Oh, it happened so soon A waxing The good love we tasted For the thrill of my life Or for hard lessons learned And you have your say, love But I won't call them wasted The years that we shed Or the bridges we burned So soon, the waxing and waiting on my crescent moon. Oh, it's midnight at noon. Here I am calling some old red eyed loon. I wonder at thunder and smiling in the blue. My thoughts are Welcome back from the soothing sounds of Lee Silvestri. You know, since starting the show, I've been blessed to be connected to musicians around the state. While there are so many people who could use our support these days, please don't forget to support our local talent. While they aren't able to play live in venues, many are playing free online. If you hear something you enjoy, make a comment, press like, and spend the money to buy their music. It's the least we can do to help them while they help us get through these changing times. Okay, back to the show. For those of you just joining us tonight, I'm spending time with Jessica Pels, the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan. Before the break, we talked about lessons Jessica's learned along the way. Now I thought we'd jump into a little bit about data and technology because, Jessica, I understand, like, the data is big for you. Yes, immensely big. (laughs) And so when you're looking at the numbers, um, and, you know, I have to say I pulled up some stats because I had to brag on your behalf a little bit. I read um, you reach 81 million people and subscriptions to Cosmopolitan nearly doubled when you started. 
Um, I, I yeah, I have to say that our our, our growth is because we listen to the audience as obsessively as we do, and data is how we do that. Um, my news director, um, Alexandra Whitaker, uh, is such a smarty, and she was giving a seminar last week, and she said this thing I love so much that I wrote it down, which is that data is breadcrumbs about what your audience thinks and feels. Um, she said it's a it's a hint, it's a gift, and mm. I, I just adore that because it's you know I think when we when we say the word data, when we talk about data points and and metrics like traffic, it can seems so deeply unsexy. Um, but really what we're talking about is interest, is how passionate the audience is about this thing or how little interest they have in this other thing. Um, and so the fact that we are so attentive and so attuned to what the audience wants um, is why we've been able to grow and and recruit new audience as we go. Well, that's what I found so amazing about how you respond to the audience. You know, I I had seen um, your interviews with the presidential candidates, and that was your answer to questions women had about um, the upcoming elections. And so when you're looking at the data, what is the story that you're looking for? How do you pull out that great information and apply it the way that you do? Well, so I think in, in regards to this question, there there's sort of two types of data that I'm looking at. The first is um, uh, responsive feedback about what we're publishing. So um, performance metrics, uh, you know, view numbers or engaged time or how many shares we get on a story. Um, so that kind of feedback about uh, about what we're publishing is is really one of the key guiding principles of what we do next. Um, we drop what doesn't work. We lean really hard into what does. But then there's another kind of data that we have been focused really hard uh, at Cosmo on developing uh, more rapidly, which is polling data. Um, and we get that from our audience every day. Um, and that enables us to ask really timely questions and get really timely feedback that um, is directional about, you know, Cosmo readers are largely millennial women, um, increasingly Gen Z women as well. And so we get really good directional information about what those generations care about um, and what they don't. And I think in regards to the candidates that you mentioned, the candidates come to Cosmo interview series that we did, um, a point of frustration for myself and my staff is that millennials um, were rarely, if ever, addressed directly by presidential candidates. Mm -hmm. um, Despite the fact that they represent over a third of voters and half of the total population and have very legitimate, perhaps surprisingly legitimate and practical concerns. Um, I know from this polling data that we, this proprietary data that we get from our audience, that reliable access to affordable health care has consistently been the number one concern of Cosmo readers for this entire election cycle. So um, I saw those interviews as an opportunity to, to sort of solve two problems at once to educate the candidates about what matters to millennials and why right. in the hopes that the candidates then develop policies that speak to those concerns. Um, and to give millennials direct access to candidates speaking to their concerns in a form they find helpful. Um, that polling data I talked about has informed us that most millennials do not find the debates to be a helpful format for decision making when it comes to who they want to support. So mm -hmm. this was our solve for all of those things at once. 
it was outstanding. And any of the listeners who haven't seen it, it's just a great place to go for for really pertinent information. Um, so as you're looking at the data today, um, what do you see as the next big thing for Cosmopolitan? Um, well, I <laughs> I have so many uh, irons <laughs> in the fire, my whole team, and I am so proud and lucky to work with this group of young women who are just so hungry and brilliant and ambitious and creative. And um, we have way too many ideas and, and way too little time to do them. Um, so we have some things that Christina, my PR person, would kill me if I told you. Oh, right. so I won't tell you yet. But, okay. okay. Um, but, you know, to, speaking to, to broader industry trends, um, you know, video, of course, is, is the the big frontier for all media companies. Um, and my boss said something really smart to me once about for magazine brands, what the real challenge is there. And the challenge is that as, as magazine makers, as content creators for websites and social platforms, we're really good at service. We're really good at surprise. We're really good at journalism. Um, video calls for a different skill, and that skill is entertainment, mm. um, which is just sort of a different thing, having fun and making people laugh. And um, that can be a challenging thing to learn. So I think that's the hurdle for um, a lot of media brands who are jumping into video. Um, I think, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see what happens with the smart speaker and the voice control market. I mm -hmm. think where it's a very big beginning of the gen of the you know trajectory of of what could happen there it's really exciting to me i think discovery is the big hurdle we all have to jump how people find you how people find what's there i don't know that there needs to be a, a product-based solve for that that there isn't yet so I'm, I'm curious to see what happens there um i do see a uh uh, if if content consumption is sort of a chain, I see uh, that streaming video, you know, people watching streaming services like like Netflix and Hulu, um, they're asking questions about that content as they're watching it. And mm -hmm. the way they ask those questions is Googling and landing on sites like mine to get answers. So uh, we are part of the same chain. I actually see a link between those two things that hasn't been created yet. Um or at least not uh, fully. Uh, my team and I have developed a, a, a thing that we call Watch Party that um, is is basically uh, a, a sort of connective tool so that we're bringing you content about the show you're watching without you having to look for it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, I think, has a lot of potential and could be a really large content arena for creators going forward. Um, and then, of course, you know, right now, the big thing is TikTok. <laughs> of course. Having your, teenagers, your daughter, of course. <laughs> yes. I'm sure she's on TikTok. Well, I'm a little bit tighter. I'm sure she's home shaking her head. No, actually, I'm not because I'm a little bit tighter on the use of social media. Um, but at the same time, her cousins have it. She is well aware of it. She does dances in our kitchen and all those sorts of fun things. Um, both her and my oh, son do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but, you know, learning, learning a TikTok dance, not a bad way to spend your quarantine time. Not at all. It's actually, even for the parents, it's extremely entertaining. Um, 
Um, so, so as as you talk about um, that idea of video and it being entertainment, and um, I had read a, a statistic that the average Cosmopolitan reader checks her Instagram 47 times a day, I wondered how do media outlets balance the need to provide that constant update and that entertainment with the need to provide accurate quality information to its readers? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't really think the two things are mutually exclusive, um, ever really. And I, I kind of feel like my focus, my focus for us is always on impact. And, um, we talk about this a lot, especially with my features team, with my op-ed team. Um, you know, if, if you write what you believe is a worthy story, but only 10 people read it, Mm-hmm. It didn't have enough impact. It didn't help the people who needed it because it didn't get to them. Right. So what I push for is always the fresh and fascinating angle that makes you want to opt in. I think um, in in digital in particular, editors learn this really critical lesson very early on, which is that, um, you know, in, in print, you have a captive audience. Someone purchased your product or got sent your product, and they're there for what's inside the covers, um, and they don't necessarily have a choice. They flip the pages. Maybe they read them. Maybe they don't. But um, it's all bundled together. The thing about digital, of course, is that the the content is um, disseminated across multiple platforms. You, a user of the Internet, you are choosing everything you click on to engage with, right? right? It's either in your Twitter feed or it's a search result on Google. And so what that means is that the onus is really on the, the content creator to make it interesting enough for you to want to read. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my team and I talk a lot about reproductive rights, which are a very important thing and, and a very high political priority for our audience. But, you know, they're talked about a lot and they can seem sort of dry. <laughs> and right. so I'm always pushing for, like, make this interesting, make this really juicy and fascinating. And that is possible. I think we've gotten very used to um, serious content being treated seriously uh, in a way that makes it feel less uh vibrant than, you know, a Kim Kardashian story. And I think that's the problem. Right. So um, it, it's sort of about bringing those two things together and, and um, creating a sense of urgency where you need it most. That's such a good point about them, those two pieces, you know, accuracy and entertainment not being mutually exclusive. And I think that people learning to do that can really look at Cosmo as um, as a model to follow um, in, in, in as an organization who is doing that successfully. So thank you for that. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about mastery because, you know, as a coach, I love to work with people to close the gap from where they are now to where they want to be. And a lot of people see that as this place of mastery. So what do you think it takes to master your craft? I think it takes um, a brutal honesty that you never should feel like you have. (laughs) I, you know, I think it's probably clear from our past um, discussions that um, I do feel like as soon as you assume that there's not someone right behind you, that's when you get overtaken. Mm-hmm. And um, the beauty of media and of my industry is that it is constantly evolving. And um, 
the particular beauty of, of a young audience is that they're always ahead of the curve. You know this from having teenagers. Mm-hmm. They're always ahead of the curve. They're always, <laughs> always guessing. than you think they are. I know. And so um, they really keep us on our toes. And, um, you know, I do think as a, as a grammarian and a perfectionist, I do think there is a there is a mastery of the craft of, um, you know, feature writing and the craft of headline writing that um, you should feel like you solidly have those tools in your toolkit. But once you feel like I've got this about every piece of your work, I think that's when it's time to grow forward and move on. And so do you feel like you've gotten to the point where you've mastered your craft and whether it's been in those smaller, you know, sub segments of what you do, but are there places that you feel like you've mastered your craft? Uh, You know, I get a great satisfaction from editing. Um, It's, it's such a luxury to me, honestly, to sit uh, and edit a story to line edit and and mark it up. And um, I find that such a true pleasure. And um, that's something I do feel like I do well. It's I I am unfortunately not able to spend most of my time doing that. (laughs) But um, it's a pleasure to do it when I can. And I think finding those things about your work that feel fundamental, and therefore feel nourishing, because Mm. you do them well, that that's really important um, to keep you powered up and, and to to enable you to feel strong enough to, to look out and into the great beyond and, and um, create new obstacles and, and challenges for yourself. Um, I do feel like the beauty of Cosmo is that it's, it's the world's biggest media sandbox. Um, we've got, you know, every platform. We've got um, a huge team of, of ambitious creatives. And so anything we want to um do we can. I also have incredible support from my bosses who um, have have always told me over the years, I've worked with um, my current bosses for about five years now, um, they've always told me to dream bigger and to go for it and to sometimes even uh, ask forgiveness, not permission. So um, if there's something that we want to do that doesn't exist yet, we create it. And I think that means that it's very hard to get bored. What a great environment to to grow your career in when you have that type of support around mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So when you think about your time at uh, Cosmo, what do you want your legacy to be? I, I struggle with how to frame this, actually, because I, um, I really do want uh, to feel like I, I left a legacy of um, putting the audience first um, over myself, over the brand. It's the audience that matters. Um, I say this all the time, that I am not the boss of the brand. The reader is the boss of the brand. And I think, you know, it does take humility and it takes a lack of hubris and a lack of ego to um, step aside and um, let the star be your audience. Um but I, I hope that that is what I have done and, and continue to do. Um, and I think at the same time, the trick is to keep surprising the audience, to keep them on their toes as much as they keep me on mine. Awesome. Wow. So <laughs> if you could give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, man. Um, chill out. <laughs> <laughs> I... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know 
that I would necessarily change anything because it got me where I am, and I'm so grateful to be here. Um, but I was a very stressed out, <laughs> very stressed out high school student. I took a full load of AP classes for I don't know three years in high school, and um, an aggressive ballet schedule. And I was talking to a friend the other day who said he had so much fun in high school he couldn't believe it. And I was like, I had no fun in high school, <laughs> and I. Um, I, I wish that I had relaxed a little bit. Um, I'm not sure where I could have found some slack for myself, but um, I I do think it's important to to develop a sense of of what does recharge you and um, to understand that going 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 all the time um, can be unhealthy and can be can limit you. Um, so I've had to learn that later, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I suppose that's what I would say to young young Jessica Duncan. <laughs> and and so what are some of the things that Jessica does for fun? I mean, where what what do you do? How do you sort of break out of your work mold? Yes. Um right. So I um, <laughs> I have started to learn how to cook, um which I really find so fun and satisfying and I was sort of scared of it because I I am a good baker, but I've never really tackled cooking before and so now is the perfect time to uh, <laughs> to do that, and it's been really fun. So I cook. I um, before uh, you know we went on lockdown for this period of time. I was starting to learn tennis, and I just adore it. Um, wow! I'm quite frustrated because I had just gotten to the point where I was like, okay, and I feel like I'm going to have to start over. But um, I love tennis. I love um, dancing and. Um, really just spending time with loved ones, um, you know, going to get drinks, to get dinner um, is probably my favorite pastime, which is a very New York City thing to say. No, that's fantastic. So you mentioned <laughs> dancing and I we didn't share, you mentioned it in our conversation, but we didn't share that you were planning to be a professional ballet dancer at one point. I was hoping to be, yes. Hoping to be. And so in sort of um, bringing your story full circle, could you talk a little bit about that experience and how did that help help you, if at all, get to sort of your commitment and, and dedication to, to do the work? Um, you know, ballet is very challenging. I think uh, everyone knows that at this point, thanks to um, all of the all of the scary movies that have been made about it. Um, ballet is really hard, and it's not for the weak, and it's uh, not for the timid. And um, I learned a lot of discipline from ballet. I learned a lot of stress management uh, from ballet, the ability to, uh, you know, deal with pain in real time to smile through it. Mm. Um, I've had a number of injuries that I've had to perform through and, and um, that takes a lot of internal strength and um, that of course will serve anyone forever. So um, I, I think it's also an interesting confluence of storytelling of, of aesthetics, um, mm -hmm. which has served me in, in my magazine career um, and performing for an audience. And, and one thing that I think is important in regards to that, that stage performers know well, but I, I don't know that other performers do, is that you have to sit in the audience and look at the stage and put yourself in a ticket holder's place. And um, that's the whole point of what you're doing is for their sake, not for yours. And I think it's hard to, to you know, literally and metaphorically go out there and sit down and 
and see things from a new perspective. But that's the point of what we do. And I think that's, um, you know, what I try to do myself and with my team at Cosmo every day is to step back and think about, okay, what, what does this feel like as the reader? What does this feel like as the viewer? Um, and I think that's been a, a, a really important lesson to take from ballet. Well, Jessica, I want to thank you so much for sharing this new perspective with us, for sharing your time and your expertise. Um, please tell listeners how they can follow you and get and be part of the Cosmopolitan audience. Oh, um, <laughs> this has been so fun. I, I have so much respect for you, and, and it was really Aww. nice to spend the time together this evening. Um, I am uh, Instagram is my big uh, platform. Uh, it's the one I care about most anyway for myself. <laughs> um, my handle is um, Jessica underscore Pels. And then Cosmo can be followed on all platforms that exist at Cosmopolitan. Um, and I encourage everyone to follow us there just to see how we adapt from place to place, which is fun to watch in real time. Well, I appreciate so much spending time with you tonight. You are amazing. And um, as always, listeners, I love to hear your thoughts on tonight's program. Visit Own Your Truth with Laura T, our Facebook page, and give me your feedback. Don't forget, if you miss a live show or want to share episodes with friends, you can catch replays on the Own Your Truth with Laura T podcast, now available on iTunes. Search the show, download episodes, and sign up to be notified of new content. This is Laura T on Own Your Truth, wishing you a healthy and happy week. Hear you next Sunday. Good night.